A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community energy choice provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice the amount of renewable energy compared to the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. This is that time, the time when people look back in history and say, wow, we should have mobilized before it was too late. That's what this moment is, is before it's too late. And it's the last such moment. So Democrats ought to be able to make a message out of that, don't you think? A lot of people are justifiably laser focused on Capitol Hill and fate of major climate and economic policies contained in the infrastructure and budget reconciliation bills currently stalled in Congress. But these national policy debates aren't happening in a vacuum. We take a look at the bigger political picture on this episode of Political Climate, a bi-weekly podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. Canary Media is an independent nonprofit journalism outlet powered by RMI and dedicated to chronicling the transition to a decarbonized economy and society. You can learn more at canarymedia.com. I am your host of the Political Climate Podcast, Julia Piper, and on this episode, I'm joined by my co-host, Brandon Hurlbut, former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under President Obama, current clean energy policy advisor, and an operating partner at investment firm NGP Energy Technology Partners. We're also joined by co-host Shane Skelton, former energy advisor to Representative Paul Ryan and current senior vice president at policy consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners. Our guest this episode is none other than clean energy and politics writer David Roberts. He's the brilliant mind behind the Volts newsletter, host of a podcast by the same name and editor-at-large at Canary Media. Before that, David reported for Vox and before that, for Grist. This episode is part two of our conversation with David, where we branched out from what's currently happening in Congress. Side note, as I speak, it appears the proposed clean electricity performance program to ratchet down utility emissions is a goner from the reconciliation bill. But like I was saying, we are branching out from what's happening in Congress on this episode to look at the politics surrounding debates in D.C. today. We pick up part two of this conversation with a discussion about David Shore. American data scientist and political strategist who consults with progressive groups about failings on the left. New York Times writer Ezra Klein recently wrote an op-ed entitled, David Shore is telling Democrats what they don't want to hear. We start this episode by looking at what that means. Then later, we get into which clean energy technologies David Roberts is most optimistic about, and how Illinois passed a big ambitious climate bill the right way, creating a new model for the nation. And with that, without further ado, let's jump back into the conversation. Uh, David Shore is a data analyst uh, who's gotten a lot of attention lately, basically for saying that the median Democratic staffer and active person in politics is young and educated and urban. But the median Democratic voter is a 50 plus year old white man who's high school educated who lives in a suburb somewhere. Basically, the idea was the heart 
and active center of the Democratic Party has lost touch with the bulk of its voters. And thus you get stuff like activists talking each other into saying defund the police. And then the idea is to the 50 plus year old white guy out in the suburbs, that's horrific. And you start losing those guys and you need those guys. So the policy advice that drops out of this or Shore's advice is pretty simple, which is Democrats should stop talking about things that are only popular among its base and unpopular among the broader electorate and start talking instead about things that are popular across the electorate to, to, to everyone. It would be easier to win if they talked about popular stuff more often, which in some sense is like obvious. But once you try to play out the consequences and, and the sort of, uh, you know, the practical effects of that, it gets very messy because the danger and this is what I think people who are are pushing back against Shore are worried about. The danger is just interpreting that as saying there's still too many racist white guys on the Democratic side for Democrats to be safe talking about anti-racism. And so they should shut up about racism and focus on economic stuff. That's sort of like the, the easiest takeaway from that. I don't think Shore would necessarily go that direction or, or support that. But that would be the kind of thing that like conservative and moderate Democrats would love to have become conventional wisdom because they love hiding from controversy. But it's worth saying that, and Shore also says this, this kind of gets lost in the debate, but it's worth saying stuff like raising taxes on rich people is super, super, super popular. <laughs> it's, and I'm all for Democrats talking about that more. Uh, you know, allowing the government to uh, uh, negotiate drug prices via Medicare is hugely, hugely popular across parties everywhere. And cinema, the supposed moderate, came in like a missile and specifically destroyed that. So it's not like the moderates we have today are listening to David Shore and being popularists. They're doing unpopular oligarchic things for no for no obvious reason. Although Shore said talk less about climate, right? Yes, Shore's terrible on climate and that's a somewhat separate thing, but but he does make a point though that I think is worth listening to which is that kind of the average Democratic voter does not rank it very highly. That true enthusiasm about climate is mostly confined to the base. And, and this is a point, uh, you know, Matt Iglesias makes a lot. It's actually the case that Democratic politicians prioritize climate somewhat more than their voting base does, somewhat more than their voters do. Like, this is an issue that has made it into the elected class, and they take it very seriously and are trying very hard on it, more than sort of the raw polling numbers would support. In the end, they just all kind of vote on culture, though. Right. Yes, it's all culture war. And this is, you know, so some of the other people pushing back against Shore are saying, look at Republicans, like the Republican policy agenda is wildly unpopular. No one likes it. No one likes protecting rich people from taxes and slashing uh, uh, social services and slashing public spending and making, you know, austerity is not popular, but they hold together unified through basically culture war stuff. They view themselves as a team, as a group. And that is what I think a lot of people think is lacking on the left is that sense of solidarity, that sense of being part of a of a team where, you know, you support the other players on the team. There are reasons there isn't that solidarity. The left is much more heterogeneous than the right. There's a lot of different interests. There's a lot of different ages and circumstances. So it's a lot more difficult to generate that solidarity. But I think that's what a lot of people are, are pushing back on is 
how can Democrats create more of that sense of unity and momentum instead of all this this constant infighting and bickering? And the, the, the only other point I'd make, and then I'll shut up, which I made about this on Twitter is one thing I feel like Shore leaves out is the massive media asymmetry, basically. Half the media now, the most popular cable channel on television, most of the most popular Facebook pages, all the most popular radio talk shows are conservative media, which is our nice way of saying conservative propaganda, started out as and have always been explicitly devoted to advancing the interests of conservatives, spreading conservative messages and advancing the interests of the conservative tribe and mostly allied with the GOP. And where it ever pushes back against the GOP is only when the GOP is insufficiently (laughs) um, zealous in, in prosecution of conservative interests. And the left just doesn't have anything like that. So you got half the media that's relentlessly negative about Democrats. And then the other half is this sort of quasi-objective, both sides, squabbling in Washington. <laughs> Washington doesn't work, all this kind of thing. So there's this enormous asymmetry in media. And it's just really difficult. Like if, a, if Republicans decide they have a new talking point, they can get it out to all conservatives almost instantly. It just it cascades through the media. They all, they all echo each other's messages. And the Dems like, go out and have a press conference you know, like Schumer goes out and has a press conference, tosses some talking points out into the press pool and just hopes for the best, just hopes that they reach Democratic voters or potential Democratic voters intact. And they just don't. So it doesn't matter if you're talking about popular stuff or it doesn't matter what you say if you don't have the infrastructure and the means, the mechanisms to get your message to potential voters. And that is what is lacking. Pod Save America tried to do it. I feel like that was crooked media. It was like attempting to be that. Yeah, it's that's exactly. I mean, that's the kind of thing that would help. I think. I mean, I don't know how to fix this problem. It's been a problem literally like four or five decades in the making. But it's just weird to me to talk about the whole thing as though Democratic politicians are discussing things directly with voters and voters are having unmediated reactions. That's not what's happening. Democratic politicians are saying things into the media ether. And who knows what is reaching those Democratic voters? Not much. So it doesn't matter what you talk about if you don't have the means to get your message where it needs to go. So that's what I'd love to see Democrats focus more on. Don't you guys think this is partially because I think conservatives have a much easier message to be disciplined on, which is if the government does anything you don't like to you, that is unacceptable. That is very easy <laughs> to pass down. That is very easy to repeat. Mask mandates, vaccine, whatever you want to talk about at any given time, taxes, the government wants X and you don't want that. That is very easy for people to you know pass through the echo chamber and sort of recite. Whereas Democrats often are trying to come up with new ways to do things. And that means like, that everyone has to Like do their job, understand. like make policy. <laughs> Crazy. No, I, to- I totally get what you're saying. It's a, it's, a, it's a much more challenging messaging environment. Not just, I mean, it's a, it's a much more challenging substantive environment. Like it's, it's not just messaging. It's substantively more difficult to do things and build things and create things than it is to just say no, 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 and try to tear things down. Like it's easier to message that, but it's also easier to do that. And also, you guys have probably talked about this before, but if you look at the research on social media, you know that what goes viral, the primary thing that goes viral is elicitations of negative emotions, especially outrage, right? Outrage and anger. That is what people click on. That's what goes viral. That's what spreads. And it's much, much more difficult to make 
pro-social sentiments <laughs> go viral. Like we should cooperate with one another and all make small sacrifices so that collectively we'll do better in the long term, right? Like it's a win-win situation if we all cooperate. Let's sprinkle in some puppies. Uh, you know, puppies o- seem to do well. Over decades. <laughs> I know. It's just that doesn't get that squirt of endorphins, you know? So, so it's also easier for the right in that sense. They just, their messages of constant anger and outrage and resentment are better suited to the current media environment. Just so weird because I feel like everyone complains, you know, the news is nothing good to say. It's all negative. Like you hear people say that out loud and yet I guess their baser instincts like come out and they can't help but click on the on the doom scroll. It's like, you know, the stores shouldn't be so full of, of sweets and candy because I want to, you know, have a better diet over the long term. But on the other hand, I go in the store and I buy the candy, <laughs> right? It's sort of like you can want one thing on an immediate gut basis and want something very different when you're reflective, right? When you sit back and reflect, like, what do I want long term? And I think if you asked news consumers, voters, like, what do you want from media in the long term? Like in the big picture, they would say, oh, something more reflective, something more educational, something more focused on policy and substance and less on the horse race. All this. They'll say all that stuff and they really do want that. But if you put an A-B test in front of them and and, and A is an outrage and B is some sort of pro-social cooperative sentiment, they're going to click on A. So there's no way to get around the sort of uh, the need for kind of like gatekeepers, someone to like not just give people exactly what they want at the second they want it. Somebody's got to do some thinking, some longer term thinking and and shaping of the of the news. I want a bottle of wine while I dig out an email tonight. Tomorrow I will reflect <laughs> exactly. and notice that I should not have done that because I'll have a fucking headache. Guess which exactly. one's gonna win? <laughs> exactly, exactly. We're we're gonna click. If we're we're gonna drink the wine if we uh, if we're given the option. Brandon already came, uh, you know, tipsy, so it's good. He got it in early. Came in hot. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I have these are big questions, David, but I'm curious. First one is we're talking about media, so I'll start there. What prompted you to start Volts? Do you feel like that was a response to you know where you saw media going today? And it did seem like you had a really great platform with Vox and Gris before that. So these all seem great, but I'm wondering if there was something that you know made you want to launch your own thing that stems from this broader discussion we're having? Yeah, a, a couple things. I loved Vox. It was a great platform. Uh, everybody who works there is great. I love the whole idea behind the place. I think nothing but the best of it. But I just, the way my brain works, the way my writing works is I can write the thing that I think of to write. But if I try to write something that someone else has assigned to me, I just get brain lock. You know, like I, I was surrounded at Vox by people who like something would happen, you know, in the morning and be like, somebody get on this, like your man Lopez, you know, he'd like sit down, yeah, thousand word piece, like literally like an hour, hour and a half. And it would be up on the site instantly. And that just looks like magic to me. I'm just a slow, sloggy. I can only think the way I think. And it just wasn't suited. Like if you're in an ad supported business, at the end of the day, you need clicks, you need growth. You need more clicks. You need more people to read, which makes total sense. Like (laughs) it's a perfectly sensible thing to want, but I am better suited writing to a smaller, more selective audience basically. And and those were always a little bit in tension. I think I surprised Vox with sort of like the level of nerdiness that you could get away with and make and make popular, but ultimately they're uh, like a mass market site. And I wanted to write a niche product for a niche audience so that I didn't have to explain at the beginning of every post why climate change is bad, 
or you know what I mean? Like what it means that solar and wind power are variable, like mm. love of God. Don't make me explain that again. I just wanted to have an audience that was with me over the long term, following me in dialogue with me, like a little bit like the old blogs were. Yeah. And the other thing is just, I wanted to be able to, insofar as I'm <laughs> a pundit or whatever, ugh, I just want to be only me and not to be representing anyone. You know what I mean? Like when I came in <laughs> to Vox and took the Twitter handle, Dr. Vox, I don't know if you guys remember that. Yep. Really did not think that through, really did not know <laughs> what was coming. And all of a sudden here I am like literally a representative of Vox. And if you don't like the Vox thing, the whole I'm explaining things to you thing, which a lot of people don't, a guy who says he's a doctor of that is really just <laughs> going to annoy you right off the bat. So I just I just rode into a wave of like bizarre blowback because basically I was tied up with Vox's identity. And again, like I'll say it again, I love Vox to this day, but I just didn't want to be. And, and, you know, the danger of me saying something stupid or getting canceled or someone calling my manager, like that's always out there in the front, uh, front of mind too. And I just didn't want to implicate anyone else in my dumb decisions about what to tweet. So really, I just am like suited to being on my own, doing my own thing, basically. I mean, I think uh, different writers are different. Different writers need the collaborative spaces more. Different writers like collaborating and working with editors and working with partners more different writers like sometimes being part of a team that's sort of got assignments and beats that they're working together to cover like all that stuff is great i I, I, love, I love all that stuff and all those people but i'm just like a cranky curmudgeon loner guy and i've just sort of worked my way into a position where i can just be that and not feel bad about being it well, we all love it. Our audience is, you know, clean energy wonky as well. And, you know, we had some general political discussion today, but wondering, David, for our, our wonks out there, what technologies are you most optimistic about right now? Well, <laughs> I have a kind of a canned answer to this because, you know, I wrote a post about this too. It's like lately I see interest and attention chasing all these sort of peripheral carbon or new carbon technologies, GWIS technologies, your CCS, you're using carbon to make other products, you're like new cements and all this kind of stuff. So I just want to say the, the technologies that I remain most enthusiastic about are solar, wind, batteries, and electrolysis, which to me are the four horsemen of cleaning up the damn grid. And the reason I'm excited about them is because A, if you were trying to pick a set of four technologies that are complementary and great for decarbonizing the grid, those are the four you'd want. And those four all happen to have gotten on learning curves and are rapidly, rapidly, rapidly coming down in cost faster than anyone predicted, faster than anyone continues to predict. I mean, there's this paper out of Oxford a week or two ago where it finally occurred to some energy modelers, instead of saying... This exponential growth in solar will level off next year. No, no, next year. No, no, next year. And these constant bad projections of solar that are too low. Finally, a set of researchers said, you know, what if it just keeps happening the way it's happening? Like, what if solar just stays on the learning curve it's on? What if wind just stays on the curve it's on? Same with electro uh, electrolyzers. And, same and with by batteries. the way, what if fossil fuels become more expensive, which is happening recently. Right? Yes, that, that that will also happen. But all they did is just model 
extensions of the cost curves that core renewable energy technologies are already on. And they found that like the grid's going to decarbonize by 2050, regardless, we're going to save trillions of dollars in this transition, utterly separate from climate benefits, utterly separate from air quality benefits, which by the way, themselves would pay for the transition. But put those aside, we're going to save money because these technologies are getting so cheap so fast. They're just going to stampede over everything else. You know, I talked to uh, Kingsmill Bond, the the energy tracker guy the other day, and this was sort of his point. Like people worry about variability. They worry about that last 20% of decarbonizing the grid, you know, sort of that's when everybody worries that the costs go up and you need new technologies to balance out renewables. And he's like, what's going to solve that problem is just renewables getting so damn cheap that they just stampede over it. You're going to be able to start just overbuilding, throwing them at everything because they're going to be so cheap. And that's not wild-eyed optimism. That's literally just if they continue developing the way they're currently developing. Oh, no, we'll, we'll make them more expensive with red tape. If you just go to Australia, it's already way cheaper than it is here. It's like... That's the thing. Like the, the, the raw commodities are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And we only have headroom. Like we have so many soft costs we could eliminate here. Like it's just the future of solar, wind, batteries, and electrolyzers is so bright. And they are absolutely doing what you want them to do. And like that's the good news story I feel like is not necessarily getting told amidst all the doom and gloom, which is that the core tools we need to do this are gathering galloping ahead better than we ever could have predicted. I think we had to call this episode like glimmers of optimism from David Roberts. It's going to be like (laughs) breaking (laughs) news, uncharacteristic optimism. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy compared to the state's average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice and energy innovations have helped vulnerable populations qualify for programs like electric vehicles, energy storage, energy savings, and more. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. So I have a question that I also wanted to ask that brings it back to the policy that I think I'll just drop in quickly because I really want to ask it. I asked about the media side. Putting that to the side, if you were advising Democrats, David, what would you tell them to run on in the coming elections? If we look back at David Shore's uh, The Pollsters research, he basically says that Democrats have to have a miracle year in 2022 to keep the House. And the Senate's more competitive. But even then, if Democrats lose the House, they're kind of going nowhere anyway. And their policies aren't going anywhere. Yep. So if you were advising Democrats, say, what is the messaging you think that they should run on? Looking at where we're at today in the current political gridlock, I mean, assuming something passes, how should they package it to have things land? We talked about doom and gloom resonating. Is there an optimistic message here that would work? What do you think? Well, my gosh, I go back and forth about this all the time. (laughs) And... And again, I feel like I should preface by saying everybody who talks about these things is a little bit 
full of it. Like, as you say, the, the, the historical currents are against Democrats in 2022. Like, the historical currents, the more proximal <laughs> political currents going on right now, it's just like everything looks bad for 2022. I think even if they pass a reasonably big reconciliation bill and the bipartisan infrastructure bill is still going to be a massively uphill climb in 2022. So probably what's going to happen is they're going to lose the House. And then everybody like me who laid out communications advice for them beforehand is going to say, oh, well, if they just followed my advice, they would have won. <laughs> you're you're going to see a lot of that post-2022. A lot of people saying, oh, I told you they were going to lose if they didn't do what I said they should do. But the fact is, they're probably going to lose regardless. <laughs> all, all that said, the very best thing they could do is pass the biggest bills possible and then talk about the child tax credit. You know, we've been talking about $3.5 Every American now knows $3.5 trillion and as polls show, most Americans have no idea what that means, what's in the bill, what it's going to do. So talk about the child care tax credit. Talk about the fact that you raised taxes on the rich. Talk about the fact that you're sending money out to unemployed people. Talk about the fact that you're getting vaccines. You know, you're, the vaccine um, rate is moving in the right direction. Like there's a, I think there's a real good chance that, especially closer to the election, this political squabbling will be done Hopefully some bills will be passed. The vaccine numbers will be getting better and better. The economy will getting be getting closer and closer to normal and sort of sparking and moving up. So there might be a decent atmosphere, a decent, you know, at least a decent sort of um, set of background conditions when they run. But the best thing they could do is just pass these bills and then talk about all the stuff we gave you. Now you have childcare. Now you have paid for childcare. Now you have guaranteed pre-K. Like you didn't have that before. And one of the things I always think they should do, and this is a subject of a huge debate, as you all know, all you hear from Republicans is how horrible Democrats are. The one thing everybody who watches Fox knows is what bloodthirsty, horrendous, satanic, pedophilic, America-hating, you know, nightmares Democrats are. That's been Fox's core message since it was founded in the 90s. And you just can't get the Democrats to seem to unite around a critique of the Republican Party, even though the Republican Party is manifestly drifting in a fascist direction and trying to overturn Democratic elections and like battling for the interests of the wealthiest people and completely bungling a pandemic. I mean, it's like a comically. Yeah, their leader committed treason. <laughs> incompetent and malign party. Like it's so over the top now. I'm like, if you can't make hay out of this, come on. So like, I think the, the message should be twofold. One is look at all the stuff we just accomplished. We could accomplish a lot more if you'd reelect us. We'll give you more money. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll send out more checks. We'll tax the rich people more. We'll raise taxes on corporations more. And the other half should be the Republican party has gone insane. And if they are elected, there's a very good chance democracy is going to crumble. Like it's wild to me that we can sit here living through this and it's just going to happen. And it's like most Americans aren't going to be warned or told it's happening. We're all just going to sit dumbstruck watching it happen until we end up here. We are Hungary, you know, here we are, we haven't had an election in eight years or whatever. Like, ah, oh, I wish we'd paid more attention when it all was coming together. Well, like, this is that time. The time when people look back in history and say, wow, we should have mobilized before it was too late. That's what this moment is, is before it's too late. And it's the last such moment. So 
Democrats ought to be able to make a message out of that, don't you think? Save American democracy? It seems like that ought to be effective. That's more like the David we know and love. (laughs) That's more the tone we're we're used to. But yeah, I I don't know. Does Does the end of democracy work? I feel like, I don't know, I am an immigrant to the country and I feel like when you question that, no one seems to like it, even if they feel that there may be some truth there. No one likes feeling like there's no hope or that there's something. And and no one likes feeling everybody has a life and bills to pay and kids to deal with. And no one wants to feel like, oh, God, we're in a moment of history where ordinary people like me are called upon to do extraordinary things. Like as much as we valorize those periods of history, nobody wants to live through one of those. Nobody wants to hear that. What people want to hear, the reason, I mean, one of the reasons Biden won and was initially so popular is because there's just an enormous appetite for can we not be in unceasing crisis constantly, please, just for a while, just for a year or two, can we not be assaulted every time we open the news. And so like, it's nothing but bad news because if you thought that like 2016 to 2020 was bad, wait until 2024 onward. Like it's going to be that on steroids. It's going to be way worse. So like as tired as everyone is, I don't see any alternative to trying to mobilize them one last time. Like it's really crunch time. So on the theme of optimism, there was actually a major climate bill that passed in Illinois recently that you wrote about, David. It was it was remarkable in a number of ways, not only in the size and the scope, but just how the players came together and worked across different factions to come up with a solution that everyone supported. So this is the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act that passed this year. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and what was it that made this Illinois policy work? Sure. Um, there were a couple of things. So... Uh, Illinois passed a, a bill in 2016, an energy bill, which sort of saved its R- RPS, its renewable portfolio standard, barely, and like kept two of its nuclear plants from closing barely, but was just sort of like an inadequate bill. And so everybody came back together almost immediately following that, like, we need a real climate bill. And so the most important thing that came together so that it could happen is that Democrats won a trifecta in the state governorship and majorities in both houses of the legislature. As I keep saying over and over again on Volts, unified democratic control seems to be a necessary, if not sufficient, condition for good, bold climate legislation at the state level. But that was only the necessary condition. So a couple of things happened. One is the utilities in that state were under uh, intense fire for corruption. There was a bribery scandal that somehow ended up in implicating the Speaker of the House. And there was a deferred prosecution agreement. And there were all these nuclear plants that were about to shut down that they desperately needed help for, all of which added up to basically utilities being defanged, sort of not being at the table. And this is in a state where they traditionally had basically veto power, like traditionally were, were, were dominant. So that really changed the politics of things just to have kind of the, that pressure of the utilities sitting on top of you off the table. So then these sort of three factions came together. There were the renewable energy developers who were felt urgency because the RPS money was running out in the state. And, you know, there were all these projects in the queue that couldn't get funded and they desperately needed money quick. And and basically they needed the target ramped up and the, the program to be refunded. So they were very motivated. Then there's the um, sort of climate justice community, which spent, you know, all those years after 2016, just doing a ton of great grassroots organizing work and coming together as kind of a unified block sitting at the table. And then there were the unions, 
who were both concerned about losing jobs uh, if fossil fuel plants closed down and if these nuclear plants closed down and they don't want the clean energy transition to pass them by. So they just wanted to get some good job standards so that they could take part in the exciting explosion of renewables. So there's plenty of conflict and it took years, <laughs> it took years. All three of these factions offered their own bills. And then there were years and years of negotiations around it. And it was just like, you know, as I was saying earlier, it was, a, it was just like what we're seeing at the federal level now, which is it was declared dead several times. Factions walked away from the table a couple of times and then came back. Like the governor rode in at one late stage and saved it. And then the house leader rode in at some even later stage and saved it. Like the whole thing was so perilous. It was very perilous right up until the very end, but they did it. <laughs> they found their way to agreement. And so now they've got this bill that's got incredibly ambitious decarbonization standards, the best job and labor standards attached to those of any state in the nation. So anybody who gets money from the state program for renewables has to use uh, union labor and a, and a project labor agreement. And about 40% of all the money spent in every part of the bill is targeted at vulnerable and marginalized communities. So there's just an extraordinary, it's extraordinary in all three dimensions. It's extraordinary on decarbonization. It's extraordinary on the labor standards in it. And it's extraordinary in the environmental justice way. So there's all these programs now set up specifically in disadvantaged and marginalized communities designed to run programs <clears throat> that take people in train them for these new jobs and get them situated in these new clean energy jobs. There's a lot of hand-waving and BS about job training that goes on in these discussions, but Illinois really is like setting up institutions and funding them with those goals in mind to train people from these marginalized communities to enjoy the newly well-paying union jobs that clean energy is creating. So really, it's just like a win-win-win all around. It's a, the rare uh, good news story in our in our I world. I do remember covering this the first time around and sort of the fallout after. It was, it was a decent bill in 2016, but I specifically spoke to this woman at the organization Blacks and Green, and she was saying how they couldn't even get a seat at the table, this being the local groups who were trying to work yeah. in clean energy, but they could not even get jobs in their own state because of the other you know, big industry players coming in. And it's funny, people are generally on the same side of wanting more clean energy, but it's a testament to the fact that these groups got together and found a solution that worked because it didn't before. And uh, now I guess it happened. Yeah, they, they got a seat at the table and the unions also felt left out of that 2016 bill. So there were no job standards in the 2016 RPS. And so what, what had been happening is there were big clean energy projects starting in Illinois that were just importing cheap labor from out of the state. So it is possible to have a win-win-win here. It is possible. I mean, if anything, the difficulty for Illinois is going to be implementing some of the incredibly rapid, I mean, the standards that, that employers have to meet in terms of saying, you know, we've got the unions in line, we're drawing from uh, local marginalized communities for businesses, for labor. I mean, there's just a lot of really high standards. And right now there isn't enough really of a pipeline of people to fill all those jobs that are going to be created. So it's a bit of a race now to sort of keep up with the standards they've set, but that's like a good problem to have. Like, and everybody's running in the same direction. Just for reference, the some of the key elements of this are a renewable portfolio standard that will raise renewable share to 40% by 2030 and 50% by 2040 with a goal of zero carbon electricity for the sector by 2045 and beyond that net zero carbon for the state in 2050. 
Also, renewable energy subsidies are expected to double. The Illinois Solar for All program is going to be expanded. Uh, several of the nuclear plants in the states will be supported with around $700 million in subsidies. However, I think that's considerably less than the utilities wanted, which is always a big thing. Five billion. Five billion. <laughs> right. So that's interesting. I mean, we do need nuclear and people, I think, largely agree that we need existing nuclear to meet our climate goals. But I guess it's interesting where they landed on that. Any quick notes on the nuclear side, David? What did that mean? It's good. I mean, I think no matter what you feel about nuclear, I feel like most people by now have come around to the position that if we've got a gigawatt of carbon-free power on the grid, we should probably keep it there. And the reason Illinois is going to be able to get to a net zero carbon electricity sector as fast as a much cleaner state like uh, like Washington or something is because half of its energy just about comes from nuclear. So it still has a ton of fossil fuel, but it only has to eliminate sort of half of, the, of, it, of its energy sector's worth of fossil fuel and nuclear does the rest. So that's why the RPS gets to 50%. The other 50% is going to be those nuclear plants. So it is kind of well positioned. And I think Illinois is going to show also in a way that New York has a little bit also that the people who want the nuclear to stay open and the people who want clean energy can work together and can both benefit and the state can benefit from both prospering. Yeah. What's interesting to your point about how holistic this is, I think fossil fuel plants will be shut down over time. Natural gas plants must reach net zero emissions by 2045. But the important thing here is that fossil fuel plants will be shut down according to their proximity to low income and marginalized communities. I think you wrote that. So that's interesting that they're really thinking through this holistically and who it impacts and really frontline communities come first. That's a first I've seen in any state policy. And that's that's absolutely a direct consequence of having those groups at the table. They insist, we want to benefit from this the way everybody else is. And the way to do that is to shut down the dirtiest plants first. So there's that's in that particular policy. But throughout the sort of whole bill, there are several policies that sort of make a point of targeting the dirtiest and least just plants first, not necessarily by just sort of pure economics. So you end this by saying, you know, the bill is a model for non-zero-sum cooperation. Every group gave a little to get a lot. That's in the Illinois case. So do you think that Democrats and, and I guess maybe Republicans, but mostly Democrats in D.C. need to heed that advice? And is uh, that where we should be our takeaway? I mean, the, what this shows is what Washington shows, what Colorado shows, <laughs> what California shows, what Illinois now shows, is if you get Democrats in charge, they do democracy, meaning they bring all these disparate interests together to come to a compromise. So Yes, it's great for all the interests to come together and compromise, but it's really only possible if Democrats hold the reins of the whole thing and they don't at the federal level. And right now we have another party that's just nihilist and will not do anything on these issues and will try to block or destroy anything. So where progress happens is where Democrats can get enough control to overwhelm Republican opposition, which it currently is basically in the states and does not seem possible at the federal level. So federally, they're going to have to sort of go to the lowest common denominator because they just don't have enough power. If they had more senators, more power, you'd see better policy. Well, Shane said he needed a glass of wine or a bottle of wine to get through his last emails. For whatever <laughs> you take away from this podcast, our <laughs> listeners might need one too. Ending on the nihilist note there with David Roberts, we really- <laughs> like we end on a better note? How about this? Yeah, go Brandon. I got a question. I got a Gen X question for David. Oh my God. Oh my God. You tweeted today <laughs> that you went to the first Lollapalooza ever. Who was your favorite band at that Lollapalooza? What was, oh, the, best oh, that what was, was the best performance there? 
that was all about Jane's addiction. They were they they that band changed my life in a profound way, and that was one of the first big concerts I ever went to. And they were headlining, so to me that was just absolutely mind blowing. And they totally um, met my expectations and exceeded them. All right. Well, then on that note, <laughs> Jane's addiction. But Jane's addiction. We can <laughs> Mary Farrell play the play the play the track. Um, David, thanks so much for joining us on Political Climate. Really appreciate your time as always. Learn so much from you and appreciate all of your writing. Wherever you write, we will we will follow. <laughs> so thank you awesome. for that. Um, thanks to everyone for listening. And you can remember to subscribe to Political Climate wherever you get podcasts. Find us on Canary Media. And thanks also to the USC Schwarzenegger Institute for supporting our show. And also to Maria Virginia and to Kyle, uh, our producer and our editor. We appreciate you so much. You make this show possible. Thanks so much for your time. Brendan and Shane, see you in two weeks. Until soon, all. Bye.